verses 1 through 8 this morning, answering the religionist arguments is what we've uh, titled the message here this morning. And let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to bless. Lord, we thank you for your word. Now minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. Make the appropriate applications to where we are today. So uh, thank you for uh, being our God. Uh, thank you for speaking to us through the word. And help us to have ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you note on the overhead uh, the uh, outline of the book. The theme is uh, the righteousness of God uh, slash the gospel of God. And uh, we have worked our way down through uh, the, the section in 118 through 320, God's holiness, man's sinfulness. In Paul's systematic presentation of the gospel in Romans, he begins with the issue of sin. Showing categorically that all are under the condemnation of sin. You see, sin is our universal problem before an all-holy God. And so uh, note uh, how this breaks down. The whole world guilty before God, depraved pagans, hypocritical moralists, and self-righteous religionists. We're still in that last part of the section related to the religionists today. Here is the universal problem. Nobody keeps God's law. Whether it be the law of conscience, the moral law, or the Mosaic law, which all overlap in terms of moral accountability, we all come short. We've all broken God's law. None of us live up to God's holy standard. So what is the answer to our sin problem? Well, Paul, as he develops his gospel presentation, emphasizes two things. Number one, he emphasizes Christ as Lord and Savior, as being the only God-provided solution to our sin problem. And number two, he emphasizes that God's answer in Christ must be received by faith. So strong is Paul's emphasis on faith that we could legitimately say that a major theme of the book of Romans is the right kind of faith. Paul starts out in 1.5 by saying that his apostolic calling, his entire calling, was for obedience to the faith among all nations. And then he says the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Romans 1.16. And then he follows this up by emphasizing the nature of a true saving faith as being revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. A true saving faith is revealed in the life of faith. Paul then follows this up by saying that the goodness of God leads to repentance. As seen in 2.4. And then finally at the end of Romans 2, he in effect defines repentance as being a circumcision of the heart. True faith is an internal matter of the heart involving the reality of repentance. So all the way through, Paul emphasizes accountability for sin in keeping with God's revelation of his truth. And then also personal responsibility for the obedience of faith involving repentance. Paul has systematically shown that all are under the condemnation of sin, whether it be the pagan, the moralist, or the religionist. He has just shown at the end of Romans 2 that the religious Jew is not made right with God on the basis of having the law 
or on the basis of circumcision. Rather, what God is looking for is a repentance from the heart, a repentant response from the heart. Well, the religious Jew has a problem with what Paul is saying. And so Romans 3, 1 through 8, interacts with pushback from an imaginary religious objector. When an unrepentant religious person is threatened with the truth, what they do is argue. Instead of repenting, they will raise objections. And then when you answer, they will object to your answers. And round and round and round it goes. Because they refuse to submit to the truth. Thinking that in their religiosity, they're okay. This is the response that Paul anticipates from the Jewish religionists here in Romans 3, 1 through 8. Now, Paul has just got done showing that there is no fundamental difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. In that, all have broken the law of God. Whether it be his moral law or the Mosaic law, all are guilty before God. And he has shown that being right with God is not a matter of externals, but rather an internal matter of the heart. Again, the religious Jew has a problem with this. Because throughout his entire life, he has believed that simply being a Jew meant that he was in a favored position before God. And not under condemnation like the Gentiles. No matter what, he was still a Jew. And so we come to the religious objector's challenges and Paul's interaction with them. We pick it up, Romans 3, verse 1. What advantage has a Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? In the Jew's mind, Paul has just contradicted everything God has to say in the Old Testament about the Jews being the chosen people with the identifying sign of circumcision. He has just said that neither Jewish heritage centered in the possession of the law nor merely the outward rite of circumcision makes any difference in one's standing before God. So the pushback is that Paul seems to be saying there is nothing special about being Jewish. This is the central objection. Now, logically, we might expect Paul at this point to say, yes, that's absolutely correct. Since all are guilty of breaking God's law in one way or another, either in terms of our conscience or in terms of... Uh, uh, God's written Mosaic law. On one level, we're all guilty of breaking God's law. So we're all in the same place. And there is no advantage for being a Jew. But that is not the direction that he goes. Rather, he says, verse 2, much in every way. What's the advantage of being Jewish? Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Much in every way indicates that Paul sees the Jew as having many advantages. But in this context, he only gets to one. Which, in essence, is the chief one. Now, later in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, he will deal with other advantages. But here he zeroes in on the tremendous main benefit for the Jew. Namely, to them were committed the oracles of God. This is huge. The word oracles means sayings, words, pronouncements, or utterances of God. This is the inspired divine messages that God 
has given that make up the scriptures. God uniquely gave his special revelation of thus saith the Lord to the Jews. Thus the Jews were uniquely privileged in being made the custodians of God's inspired revelation. Lots of places we could go, but here in Psalm 147, 19 and 20, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. But Israel was given the revelation of God, the special revelation of God. When God wanted to communicate truth to the world, he did it in relationship to the Jew. Uh, this is from Corey Ten Boom, about Corey Ten Boom. You probably can't read it unless you're on the front row, but that's okay, I'll read it to you. Uh, Corey said, I remember Nolly, that's her sister, telling me, we love the Jews because we can thank them for the two greatest treasures. And really, of course, we understand it's God behind the Jews. All the thanks goes to God, but, uh, you know, secondarily. Uh, first of all, a book written by the Jews, inspired by God. Uh, it is the Bible, and we must thank Israel for it. It is a book which is almost bursting with good news and glorious promises. All of its writers were Jews, except Luke, but he was converted through a Jew. I want to thank you, the Jews, for this book. For the Bible has shown me uh, the way to the second blessing, Nolly mentioned. It got me acquainted with my greatest friend. He was a Jew. On his divine side, he was a son of God. But on his human side, he was a Jew. This friend is my Savior. Wow, how true that is. What a tremendous advantage and blessing given to the Jews. The recipients of God's word. They had the advantage of having the scriptures. As Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Paul told Timothy, the holy scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The gospel is found in the Old Testament scriptures. And it was the law that was intended to be a tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Galatians chapter 3. Now, in our culture, has any blessing been more overlooked and taken for granted than the availability of the Holy Scriptures? It is amazing how many Bibles we have in our culture. I mean, you go to a motel room, uh, you'll find a Gideon Bible, most likely. I think times are changing a bit, but still. To have the living Word of God in our possession is a precious treasure beyond measure. John Wesley wrote, I am a creature of a, a day passing through life as an arrow through the air. I am a spirit come from God, returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf till a few moments hence, I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore, God himself has condescended to teach me the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. Yes, the Jews had the great advantage of having the scriptures given to them firsthand. And yet, 
they did not properly value it or take advantage of it. Jesus said to the Jews in John 5, 46, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Well, at this point, the imaginary objector comes forth with another rhetorical question. Verse 3, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the, un, make the faithfulness of God without effect? Now, you have to kind of think through a Jewish way of thinking here. Uh, note the word some, by the way. Paul is gracious in saying some, while in fact most did not believe. Paul will show later that God always has a remnant in Israel, but consistently just a small remnant. The phrase, uh, did not believe, what if some did not believe, could just as well be translated, were unfaithful. And scholars are divided as to how this should be taken. However, we should note that while faith and faithfulness are distinct, they are also related in the teaching of Paul. We've already noted that belief saves, Romans 1.16, and is then revealed from faith, initial faith, to faith, the life of faith, in the lives of those who then live by faith, Romans 1.17. Thus, in the theology of Paul, faith and faithfulness are closely linked together. It is expected that true faith will demonstrate itself in some level of faithfulness. Now, the Jews had the conviction that no matter what, circumcised Jews would be saved in the end. They thought that their circumcision was an insurance policy and that they, as the favored people of God, were ultimately going to be okay with God. No matter what, the Jews are saying. People have the same uh, kind of errant theology today. If you are a baptized Roman Catholic, eventually you'll get there. Uh, you might have to spend, you know, a while in purgatory. But eventually, if you are a baptized Catholic, you'll get there. That's, that's Roman Catholic theology. Uh, a lot of people think uh, if you're baptized, uh, you go to a funerals of mainliners, a lot of them will say, well, they were baptized, you know, as a baby. here, And so, so we know they're in heaven because they're baptized. Well, the question then is this. Okay, if the Jews lack faith and are unfaithful, does that mean that God is unfaithful in his covenant promises to them? You see, thinking through the lens of a Jew here, uh, this challenges the integrity of God. Because, you see, God promised them an enduring relationship with him. If now their unbelief puts them outside the good graces of God, does this mean that God is unfaithful? That is the issue the objector brings forth here. By the way, this is exactly what covenant theologians or those holding to replacement theology in effect hold to. They claim that God is now done with Israel and that all his promises to Israel are now somehow spiritually fulfilled in the church. The church, they claim, is spiritual Israel, which is not true. Notice what God says back here in addressing the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 31, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, 
then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Speak a reference to the nation. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundation of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. God is saying in the strongest terms possible that he will never abandon the Jews as a nation, as a people. And notice he says, they will not be cast off in spite of all they have done. However, what the Jews fail to realize is that these promises are made in reference to the nation. And that not all individual Jews will partake in the spiritual blessings of God. As Paul says in Romans 9, 6, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Just outwardly, being a part of the group doesn't automatically bring favor with God. It is necessary to have an inward conversion of faith in the heart. And that's what they're missing. That's his point at the end of Romans 2. Now, most Jews will not be saved, even in the tribulation period when there will finally be a great turning to God in Israel. Yet even so, according to Zechariah 13, 8 and 9, only one-third of them will actually be saved. God will fulfill all of his promises to them as a people, as further clarified in Romans 9 through 11. But to partake in it, they as individual Jews do need to come to repentance. And saving faith. They need a circumcision of the heart, as Paul said in Romans 2, 29. The religious at this point is trying to make the issue one of God's character. But God puts the onus on human responsibility. The religionist says, God promised to save us as Jews. But in reality, God promised to save them not as a whole group, not simply because they are blood Jews, but rather on the basis of repentant faith. A circumcision of the heart is required. So does the response of unbelieving faithfulness on the part of the Jews nullify the faithfulness of God and his promises to them in the word? Verse 4, certainly not. Let God be true. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Certainly not is emphatic. Let God be true means let God be what he is. True. God cannot lie. He is a God of truth and he is always true to himself. He's completely reliable. He will never break his covenant promises. This amounts to an attack on the very character of God. In truth, God in his judgment is totally consistent with himself at every point. Let God be true, but every man a liar. The every man a liar is a takeoff from Psalm 116, verse 11, which says all men are liars. I mean, if you put the people of the whole world on one side, saying one thing, And God, on the other side, God will be proven true, and they will all shown to be liars. Stephen Cole says, if there seems to be a discrepancy 
between his promises and what we perceive, the fault always lies with us, not with God. In any contention, he is right, even if the whole world lines up against him. Amen. I don't know about you, but I always start with the presupposition that God is always right. Even if I don't understand it, he's always right. Uh, I start with the presupposition, God, you're right. Uh, No matter what, God is right. Uh, I like this quote from Spurgeon. He says, uh, the word of God is the anvil upon which the opinions of men are smashed. Yeah, how true that is. And then to back up what he is saying, Paul quotes what is written in the scripture. And not just any scripture, but that which quotes David in his confession in Psalm 51.4 as saying that you may be justified, that God may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Now, the context of David's statement in Psalm 51 is in relationship to his sin, the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, followed by murder and ongoing deceit. Then God sent Nathan the prophet to confront David. And David, in response, repented, and God forgave him. But he also said there would be lifelong grievous consequences. Well, rather than argue with God about being unfair, David affirmed that God is justified in what he said. His judgment was right. David admitted that he was wrong and God was right. That, by the way, is a spirit of true repentance. David, in effect, was saying, God, you are completely right in everything you have to say. Now, when it says, and may overcome when you are judged, it means that when people call God into question over his ruling, in the end, God will always be shown to be right. And by the way, it's never a good idea to judge God in trying to defend yourself. You're going to lose. God is going to be vindicated. Job was the most righteous man in the world. Suddenly, all this calamity and trouble came upon him, and he couldn't understand it. I mean, the Bible itself says he's the most righteous man on the earth. Why? And so he contended with God, claiming he was innocent. And this just wasn't right. It's kind of demanding an audience with God. Not kind of, he was. But here's where it ended. All of a sudden, God appeared to Job. And it was quite an experience. Job 40, moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? <laughs> That's a good question. You're going to correct me? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. In the end, every mouth will be stopped before God, and everyone will be quiet as a stone. God is always right. No one can argue their case before him. I know people, when I see God, I'm going to, yeah, 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 right. You're not going to say anything. Moody Bible Commentary Whenever a sinner, whether Jewish or Gentile, stands in the courtroom of the judge and pleads his case, 
the judge will always be found to be in the right and win the case. But the religious objector is not done yet, saying, verse 5, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust to inflict wrath? Paul says, I speak as a man. This question assumes the person is following Paul's argument regarding God's righteous judgment, and yet seeks to make a sophisticated argument against the idea of God holding him accountable. If indeed the unfaithfulness of people demonstrates the righteousness of God, which it does, well, then would God not be unjust for inflicting wrath? I mean, this is such a crazy argument that Paul immediately, in a sense, apologizes for even bringing it forth, saying, I speak as a man. This is a pure human argument, a depraved human argument. What the person is saying is this. If God is shown to be right by our sinfulness, then in our sinfulness, we are actually bringing honor to him. Therefore, wouldn't it be unjust for God to inflict wrath on us? Nelson's study Bible, if humanity's unrighteousness reveals God's righteousness, why then should God punish unrighteousness? New International Bible Commentary, if the worst in man brings out the best in God, man's sin surely serves a useful purpose in God's plan. Then what room is there for human responsibility and liability? It is amazing the ingenuity that depravity can come up with in trying to defend itself. It's amazing how people can rationalize their sinfulness, even challenging God on his principles, in an effort to try and excuse themselves. Now, this crazy thinking actually says, my sin serves to magnify God in his righteousness, and therefore he should not hold me accountable for it, as if my sinfulness is actually doing God a favor. The argument is my sin actually makes God look good, so why should he judge me for it? That can't be right. That that can't be right, can it? This is so absurd that Paul does not even give an extended answer, but rather simply says, verse 6, certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? Again, Paul responds with an emphatic, certainly not. I mean, if it was the case, that God would not judge Jewish sin because it somehow serves to exalt his character, then on what basis would God judge the pagan Gentile world? I mean, after all, they're a lot more overtly sinful. And if sinfulness makes God look good, then why would they be judged? And yet all Jews agreed that God is going to judge the Gentile world. It was a given. From Genesis on, Genesis 18.25, Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, Abraham talking to God, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer is yes, he will. Thus Paul shows the inconsistency and the foolishness of this argument. Leon Morris, every sinner can plead that his sin has made, has been made to serve a good purpose, and on this premise, there could be no judgment. But the religious objector is not 
one to easily give up. And so another related objection is brought forth. Verse 7. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? This is really the same objection as the one stated in verse 5, with a slightly different twist. In verse 5, the issue was unrighteousness that highlights the character of God. But here in verse 7, the issue is one of falsehood that magnifies the truth of God. So I say really kind of the same argument in a little different vein. Now, evidently, Paul had run into this argument before, perhaps repeatedly, and therefore it's emphasized. The argument goes like this. If my lie serves to further God's truth, then it really is to the glory of God. And in that case, why am I still judged as a sinner? Again, the idea is that if my sin serves to make God look good, then why would he have a problem with it? The fallacious idea is that people can lie to the glory of God because it serves to highlight the truth of God. It's to the benefit of God. Well, if such is the case, the person reasons that he should not be called a sinner. He doesn't like that. He doesn't like to be called a sinner. He doesn't want to be classified as a sinner. After all, he is making the case that he is really an enhancer of the glory of God. That sounds a whole lot better, doesn't it? Enhancer of the glory of God, sinner. Yeah, we like this category. And if the premise holds that God's truth is glorified in my lie, then that is a good thing. Can't you see them trying to get Paul to go along with this? Doesn't that make sense? I can actually lie to the glory of God. And God should approve. Because it makes him look good. I mean, this is for God's ultimate good. So what's the issue? Just one problem. Actually, many, but, but just one problem. This is God's moral universe. And it doesn't work that way. We don't set the terms. God does. Sometimes a person can be too smart for their own good, especially religious people. You start playing these kinds of mind games with God and you're in big trouble. Depravity can rationalize anything, even talking yourself into the idea that in your sin, God is glorified. You can even get to where you think you have God in a corner, to where if he is consistent, he can't judge you. All the depths of human depravity that seeks to elude God's righteous judgment and the verdict of guilty sinner. Thus, the unrepentant religious person is ever trying to argue his way out of accountability for his exposed sinfulness. It's clever, but sinful. It's clever, but folly. It's clever, but fallacious reasoning according to God's impartiality and holy standards. What they don't understand is that God can be glorified in our sin in the sense that his holiness contrasts with it. But at the same time, he can and he must hold the sinner accountable. There is no inconsistency on God's part. 
Our sin is like a black velvet backdrop with the diamond of God's holiness brought into glorious contrast with it. Now, this doesn't mean that God approves the dark as sin backdrop of our sin. It's just the way it is. It doesn't mean God overlooks the darkness of our sin. In truth, God's glory is not dependent on our sin. His character and truth just expose it. And then Paul carries this flawed idea to its logical conclusion. Verse 8. And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. This is a blasphemously ridiculous argument that says, if being bad makes God look good, then let us do bad so the good may come from it. This would be the logical conclusion from what is being argued. Now, this is clearly an errant idea that says the end justifies the means. And then Paul says, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say. This is exactly what some people were accusing Paul of teaching. People were twisting Paul's message of grace, saying that his message of grace means it doesn't matter how we live. In fact, sin magnifies grace. So let's sin. So that grace may be all the more magnified. You can see them taking statements like Romans 5.20, where Paul says, where sin abounded, Grace abounded much more. I don't care how much your sin is abounding. Grace is much more. Grace, grace. Oh, wonderful. Grace. Doesn't matter how we live. Grace abounds. So it's all good. Gives you a license to sin. And it's all to a good end. That is really what these slanders were doing. Were saying about Paul. They were saying that Paul says... Grace gives one a license to sin, and somehow then good comes from it. But in truth, he taught no such thing, as he will show at great length in chapter 6. Now, theologically, the errant view Paul is talking about is what we call antinomianism. It's a $50 word. Maybe you're not familiar with it, but let me uh, quote from gotquestions.org, which is a great resource, by the way, if you have questions. Got questions. The word antinomianism comes from two Greek words, anti meaning against, and namas meaning law. Antinomianism means against the law. Theologically, antinomianism is the belief that there are no moral laws God expects Christians to obey. Antinomianism takes a biblical teaching to an unbiblical conclusion. Really, the the real issue in antinomianism is that it rejects the lordship of Christ. Lordless is antinomian. Logically, uh, what develops here, if you take the religious argument being put forth, is that it doesn't matter how you live. Because God and his grace, it just trumps everything. This is what I call the lordless gospel or easy believism. It's really antinomianism when carried through logically to its conclusion. 
Now, Jude is very emphatic that antinomianism, which says that under grace you have a license to sin, is to be renounced in the strongest of terms. This is the position of false teachers. Jude 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These antinomian types have two problems. Not only are they ungodly and turn grace into a license to sin, but they have a problem with the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, it is true that we are not under the Mosaic law, but that does not mean that we are under nothing. The Bible is clear that while we are not under the law of Moses, we are now under the law of Christ, which is the law of love. The law is not our master. But the Lord is. Under grace we've been freed from both the penalty and the power of sin. Under grace we now have the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that leads us into holiness, not into sin. Under grace our very nature has been changed to where we now desire to live for God, even as we still have the flesh and struggle against sin. Paul did not even respond to these slanders other than to say their condemnation is just. Steve Lawson says they will be judged by God for such foolish talk and misconstrued conclusions. Paul cuts it off right there. In essence, this is the end of the discussion. Paul has nothing more to say other than to turn them over to God. Their condemnation is just. In Paul's mind, there is nothing more serious than corrupting the message of God's grace. And you can corrupt it in one of two ways. Number one, you can add to grace, claiming that you have something to do to help save yourself. This is the denial of the gospel of grace, which Paul in Galatians 1, 8, and 9 condemns in the strongest of terms, saying if anyone preaches any other gospel than the gospel of grace. Let him be accursed, which is to say, let him be damned. But secondly, you can also take the position that grace gives you a license to sin, which is also totally not true. Grace truly received is a life-changing reality. In this section in Romans 3, 1 through 8, the religion is shown to present really essentially three Arguments as to why he is okay before God. Number one, the Jewish religionist thought he was okay because of his religious heritage. By way of application, people might think they're okay because they're born into a Christian family, because they've been baptized, or because they belong to a church. Now, indeed, being brought up in a Christian context has advantages, but it does not guarantee a person's salvation. Each person must make their own saving faith commitment. Paul has already shown that before God, it's not externals that make a person right with God, but rather it's a matter of internals. It's a matter of the heart. Number two, the Jewish religionist thought he was okay because of God's special promises to the Jews. What he failed to realize is that saving faith is personal. 
Yes, God's promises are true to the nation, but they must be appropriated by a circumcision of the heart. As a young man, I was brought up in a church that had John 3.16 on the front of the church. Every time we walked into the church, we saw John 3.16. Well, from my earliest memories as a child going to church, I remember John 3.16. Well, in my rebellion, I didn't get saved until I was 21, but in my rebellion, I would look at that verse and I would say to myself, God can't send me to hell because I believe. What I fail to realize is that intellectual assent is not sufficient. I mean, even the demons believe and tremble. It's with the heart that one believes. And a true saving faith involves repentance, which Paul calls a circumcision of the heart. Yes, the promises of God are all good. But we must receive the word with, quote, an honest and good heart, as it says in Luke 8.15. Number three, the errant religionist, in effect, argues that grace gives a license to sin. And in fact, God uses our sin to bring glory to himself. In truth, this line of thinking is so perverted, it doesn't even deserve an answer. Paul simply says their condemnation is just. Now, one cannot presume on the grace of God. Paul pleaded with the Corinthians not to receive the grace of God in vain. The bottom line is very clear. If you contend with God, he will win and you will be condemned. God is God. It's his moral universe. He sets the rules. He's large and in charge. We don't judge God. He is the judge of all. He's the creator of all, and he's the judge of all. Now, you might argue your way all the way to hell, but you will never argue your way out of it. Stephen Cole says it's easier to rationalize sin than to repent of it. It's easy to latch on to some objection about God or the Bible. Use that objection to dodge the clear truth of the Bible about Jesus Christ. And then justify your own sin. The Lord Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of God's word. If he is true, then every objection against him is a lie. God will prevail when he judges all sin. Make sure you have repented of your sin and taken refuge in the lamb who was slain for sinners. Jesus Christ and him crucified is God's final answer to every objection. For true believers, when God speaks, that ends the argument. We humble ourselves under his sovereign authority. He is right, we are wrong. The only way to be right with God is on his terms, and his terms are his son. Putting our faith in him as our Lord and Savior. When Adam and Eve sinned, in the garden, they were, immediately they realized that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings, as we find in Genesis 3. Well, this really represented human effort in trying to cover the effects of their sin. But then as God confronted them in the garden, he went on to make garments of skin, representing a blood sacrifice, ultimately typifying the ultimate blood sacrifice, and clothe them. Well, here's the picture. People are sinners who are exposed before God. 
They try to cover themselves with their own goodness, but they're still naked in their sin before God. So they try to cover themselves with religion and all its rituals and rules. But this also leaves them still uncovered. Having been exposed, they then try to cover themselves with various arguments, which also leaves them naked in sin and exposed before God. Here's where you are. You're a pretty good person, right? I'm talking, uh, I'm an imaginary objector here. Uh, And uh, so so how how many righteous things have you done? How, How righteous are you? Well, Isaiah speaks to this. We are all as an unclean thing in all our righteousnesses, all the right things we do. Okay, I'm glad you do a lot of right things. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Only when we finally see that all our efforts and religiosity are but a covering of filthy rags, leaving us without any real covering before God, Only when we finally see we are in sin with no means of covering ourselves. Only in repentance when we acknowledge our naked condition and look to God for His covering can we be saved. And praise God He has provided a covering for our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. In saving faith, God removes our sinful robes of unrighteousness and He puts on us the perfect white robe of Christ's righteousness. In this we see the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ took all of our sin, and in saving faith, we get all his righteousness. That's a grace deal. That's grace. That's the gospel of grace. And the gospel above all is a gospel of grace. And grace truly received is a life-changing reality. Many of us are familiar with Hans Christian Andersen's story called The Emperor's New Clothes. The story is summarized this way. Let, let me, uh, you know, just uh, summarize it. There was an emperor obsessed with his appreciation for clothes. He's into clothes. Fine linens, fancy robes, and such. So he summoned and commissioned some of his master weavers under his rule to make him a suit of the most exquisite linen and finest cloth. These weavers, not wild about their self-centered emperor, decided to make a fool of him and trick him into believing they have crafted the most beautiful robes made from a fine but mysterious magical cloth. They convinced the king that the cloth they've used can only be seen by wise people. Of course, the king wanted to be seen as wise, so he pretended he could see it, and everyone played along. After pretending to dress their emperor in clothes that didn't exist, the emperor was secretly secretly discouraged that for some reason he himself couldn't see the new outfit that he was supposed to be wearing, which would imply that he himself was not wise. But not wanting to be thought of as unwise... He pretended to see it, and he donned on the imaginary robe. He donned in the finest and most beautiful attire, uh, presented himself now to the kingdom. So he went out into the world, parading through the kingdom in his birthday suit, extolling the virtues and the beauty of his new wardrobe. When the rest of the kingdom's people heard about it, 
They too did not want to be thought of as fools, so they oohed and they awed, pretending to admire the emperor's new clothes. And on it went, until a small child out in the public square, without concern for such supposed wisdom, blurted out what everyone else was thinking. The emperor's not wearing any clothes! At once everyone knew the truth, including the emperor. That is a picture of phony religion. People put on a big show. We've got a huge cathedral. It just makes you feel like you're ah, holy here. They talk big. All kinds of sophisticated arguments. And so everyone plays along. But in truth, they are all naked in their sin before God, no matter what they or others say. Reality before God is that we are either clothed in our own filthy rags of religion and self-effort, or we are clothed with Christ's righteousness. Let me ask you, spiritually speaking, what are you clothed in today? Are you clothed in your own supposed goodness? Are you clothed in religion and rituals? Are you clothed in sophisticated religious arguments? Before God, all of these leave you totally naked and exposed in sin. Only being clothed in the righteousness of Christ will cover you from the condemnation of sin in the presence of the all-holy God. And how do we put on the righteousness of, of Christ? Well, it's through faith. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul shares his testimony. And he says, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having mine own righteousness. Not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Count everything else loss. Of no profit. And put your faith in Christ alone as your Lord and Savior. And when you do, God will clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. The answer to our sin, the only satisfying answer before God is Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song.